My payment is $25,000 in cash, in advance, no exceptions. Twenty-five? Yes, sir. Thought you said twenty. I was told twenty. Twenty-five. Is that a problem? We don't have a problem with twenty-five. That's not our problem. And what is your problem? We have a problem with the advance. No exceptions. Sir, let me explain. One of the reasons we're interested in having this done is my mother holds a very large yeah. insurance policy. They usually do. Now, we thought if we could guarantee payment after the policy had been covered... Look, this really isn't open for discussion. The conversation is finished. Please, this is... What you think this was, huh? Let's make a deal? This is serious business you're fucking with here, boy. I'm aware of that. No, I don't think you are. I don't take you seriously. This is gonna get done one way or another. <laughs> Our conversation is finished. I never met you. You never met me. We never discussed the possibility of a retainer. What do you mean? You know how to reach me. Call me if she's interested. Hey, man, you talking about my sister? Is that who she is? Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 226, Killer Joe. This is a nice uh, transition episode, I think. will kind of be a nice lead-in to One Trashy Summer. That's right. It's the third annual One Trashy Summer already. That's right. Well, certainly a movie about trashy people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is definitely a trashy movie. I don't for think sure. there's any question about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming up with the idea for One Trashy Summer a couple years ago. I never would have thought we'd still be doing it. It seemed like a one and done, especially after last year. Yeah, and I, I don't know where if we there's... delayed it, and then people were not really into those '80s trash movies. I don't know if there's like. a lot of people out there that are pining for it year over year. But I, me. I, yeah, I'm excited for. It. I like seeing the schedule that you come up with for it there's usually some stuff in there that is going to be new to me but always fun there's always some great content to really you know dig into and get a lot of good conversation out of but i will say it it seems like of our 
series. Greatest October is definitely moving the needle a little bit more than One Trashy Summer, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think that for whatever reason this year, I've picked some movies that are sort of expanding it in terms of the type of things that we usually pick. More in the vein of a blood harvest, which is like a one-off idea of like, let's do something a little obscure that people probably don't know about. That's another one that people are getting into the reviews on the podcast app being like, we need more blood harvest type (laughs) material. Well, there definitely is an audience for that. Absolutely. I don't know if it's our audience. No. But people, we need to like get into that market. People definitely like that kind of horror stuff. And the uh, Joe Bob Briggs crowd. Yeah. And one of the choices this summer will fall into that as well. But Killer Joe is sort of like Basic Instinct in that it's a mainstream movie with big stars. Basic Instinct was a huge hit. Killer Joe was not. But... I think enough people probably know this one as like an entry point for us oh, yeah. to kick off this month. I don't really know how this is actually summer. We've gone through like a very cold I'm spell. I'm wearing a sweater <laughs> right now because it's chilly out. Yeah. I envisioned One Trashy Summer as like sweaty. Yeah, right. Literally body heat. Yeah. We're just looking out your balcony <laughs> at a building on the fire The two of us sweating. nude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's like what I envisioned for One Trashy Summer, but here we are. Last year we did it in July. We're back to June this year. Who knows if we'll do it next year? Who knows if we'll even have a podcast or if we'll be alive? There's kind of a sweaty vibe to this movie, although it's hard because it's like the characters are always wet, either from sweating or because it's raining out. Yeah, that's true. All right, so before we get into Killer Joe, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And subscribe to this podcast, please. <laughs> wow. Apple Podcasts, yeah. Podbean, whatever you want. Give us a rating and review. Nothing please. brings uh, people in like the Begging. sad smell of desperation. <laughs> please give us a rating and review. Please. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter and follow us on Letterboxd. Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Yeah, really dive into those reviews and you know interact with us on there please (laughs) we'd love to know what you're watching and what you think of what we're watching aside from the stuff we do on the show it's a fun place to talk about movies although i don't know sometimes it's depressing (laughs) not just letterbox but like twitter and everything it's just oh yeah it's non-stop about everything yeah i don't know sometimes i get annoyed stuff out there on this movie on letterbox you know i'm sure oh well letterbox is (laughs) <laughs> ridiculous <I'm, laughs> that you can't even <laughs> you can't even take that seriously no no but yeah i was just thinking just in general with on twitter and stuff people criticizing people for what they like or whatever and i don't know it just i'm not sure when it happened i guess it's the internet's fault but it seems like you just can't have fun anymore like liking stuff yeah, it has to always be up well, for debate and everybody's guilty of it i'm guilty of it you're guilty of it too for stuff that we don't like. But the idea that it's just like, I don't know, it's exhausting. I don't know. Everything's though. this endless discourse. I don't about really it. have this like harsh of a reaction to something liking something that I don't like. Like, I, I always, I'm always like, oh, it's cool that you like that. I don't, but I like. Oh, well, good for you. Haha. <laughs> no, but I like when people have interests and are into them more so than what this other thing has become. 
because it did cross my mind like when we're getting ready to do this i'm like oh man this is like a little bit of a controversial movie and then i'm just like you know what every single movie is controversial now yeah. or, or or show or book or like song or whatever it is there's some reason why it's like this horrible thing that no one should like well this is definitely a movie that <laughs> this got... is a movie that can be off-putting though <laughs> which i could understand it got in under the wire i don't think you'd make it today especially with some of the star well, caliber people. Might, if he could get the uh, funding for it still. I see him just being like, I just want to make movies that Well, shock he's also people. like 86. That's true. There's not a lot left in the tank. <laughs> I just mean with this caliber of star. Oh, absolutely. McConaughey probably wouldn't, I don't know that he would take this chance, given where he was at at his career in this time. I mean, I, it's not like he was being cast in everything, but he had a pretty successful career as like a leading man in romantic comedies. <laughs> Do you take this chance at this point if you're riding a good wave in today's climate? Well, I don't think he's like the most politically correct guy now. Not that he's yeah, yeah. super controversial, but I don't know if that's like why he would turn it down. It just doesn't seem like this is something that would get off the ground at all now. I agree. Because people have a very difficult time reading satire, which is definitely like a big talking point in some of our episodes and it's something that comes up time and time again with almost everything especially from previous eras like the 90s or something it doesn't seem like anyone understands it well people definitely... take everything deathly seriously yeah i mean there's definitely like layers to this movie i mean i was telling you before the show this is another movie like smooth talk that i, I don't think was on my radar at all that you introduced me to and i watched it with you and the first time i watched it it was shocking <laughs> certainly by the end of the movie i was pretty shocked but I definitely was kind of viewing it as more of like this crime thriller. And now on like subsequent viewings, I kind of like get the humor more because there's definitely a, a pretty large element of dark comedy. Yeah, I definitely think this is supposed to be a black comedy, which is how the play was described. So Killer Joe came out in 2011, although really didn't have any kind of a U.S. release or anything until 2012. It's directed by William Friedkin who we've discussed a little bit on this podcast. He directed The Exorcist. He directed The French Connection. Yes, yeah, actually a kind of a weird guy that we've actually, it feels like we've talked about him more not on the show in the past few months. We've talked about his movies. We watched some of his movies. Yeah, we'll circle back to his like filmography, abbreviated, like leading up to this movie uh, in a bit. The screenplay was by... Tracy Letts, and it was based on his 1993 play of the same name. Tracy Letts is sort of a famous playwright. He's also known as an actor, too. He played, like, Lady Bird's dad. I'm sure everyone knows his face. You would know who he is. Oh, yeah. But he won a Pulitzer Prize for August Osage County, which was also one of his plays. He had worked with Friedkin on a previous film, Bug, which was also one of his plays. That's right. We're staying in Texas, as we did with Hell or High Water, and this is definitely like a, almost a similar universe, but a little more trashy, For even sure. somehow, than <laughs> Bank Robbers. Yes. Killer Joe stars Matthew McConaughey as the titular character, Emile Hirsch as Chris, Juno Temple as Dottie, Gina Gershon as Sharla, and Thomas Hayden Church as Ansel. It's definitely a, a perfectly cast movie. Oh, yeah. Like, without sure. question, every part is nailed by the people in their roles. The budget of the film was $10 million. The box office 
was 4.6 million. Hmm. It only ever opened in 75 theaters in the U.S. But its legacy lives on. A big reason for that is that it was rated NC-17. Yeah, that makes it tough. This is a quote from Friedkin regarding the rating of the film. Cutting would not have made it mass appeal. Cutting it would have been the equivalent of what members of the United States government and military leaders said about the Vietnam War. They said, quote, we have to destroy Vietnam in order to save it. And that's what I would have had to have done to Killer Joe. (laughs) (laughs) To get an R rating, I would have had to destroy it in order to save it. And I wasn't interested in doing that. Yeah, sorry, I was jumping in. It would have had to be a completely different well, I just think it's insane that he was comparing it to <laughs> Vietnam. It's like, what is he well, talking yeah, about? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe there's uh, some hyperbolic uh, statements going on there. But he is right, though. And when you think about a $10 million budget, I mean, talk about trying to make this movie now. And who would even fund this idea? Yeah. It's crazy how much stuff has changed just in the yeah. last decade. It got the NC-17 for graphic, disturbing content involving violence and sexuality and yeah. a scene of brutality. Well, you don't get the sense that that discussion was one of like, if you just cut this scene by like three seconds, you'll be good. <laughs> I mean, well, there is, a, there is an R-rated DVD, and there's two scenes that are actually pretty close together that are the things that are cut heavily. Okay. But as Roger Ebert put out in his review... It says, a scene of brutality. In his review, he says, I counted six. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking <laughs> yeah, about. There's, they were definitely going for in-your-face, over-the-top violence. After an unsuccessful appeal, LD Entertainment announced plans to release the film uncut with the NC-17 on July 27, 2012. Eventually, the rating was surrendered in lieu of an unrated director's cut Blu-ray DVD release. And an edited R-rated version was also released on DVD with two scenes heavily edited. Uh, I think I can think of one of the two scenes. The other one is just uh, the brutality at the very end. Okay. But the film has a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think film critics generally understood what this film was trying to do. There is sort of a nastiness to it in the sense that Beyond the obvious. I mean, in the sense of like the perspective of the film, which is get a look at these people. And I think a key no part one is of particularly redeemable understanding or appreciating or what your reaction to this film will be was is based off of distance. I just wrote the word distance down because I think in order to appreciate this film on any level or be able to think critically about it or form an opinion of it it's not even necessarily like it but to be able to handle it you have to feel comfortable with your distance from it and that could be a distance intellectually from these characters financially from these characters moralistically from these characters any one of those things or all of those things because there definitely is a sense in the movie of these characters are too dumb to live yeah which is something I saw pointed out somewhere, and I, I, I liked that that idea because that is basically one way of looking at it. I know that in the bonus features of the Blu-ray, Tracy Letts was saying that that's not how they were thinking of it, that they were approaching these as, as real people and, and not looking down oh, on yeah. them in that sense. But I don't know if Fried can agree with that because, I mean, there's little things in this movie that are sort of, I don't know, I guess intentionally hilarious, but... I don't know if they would show up in a script of a play 
where every time the TV is on, it's monster trucks and shit oh. like that. <laughs> it's clearly like these people are trash. Don't worry about the bad shit that's going to happen to them because they deserve it for being trash. Yeah. You know, this is a part of society that we can all look down our nose at and not worry about it all. Right, it's sort right. of like the attitude. We were talking about it before the show, but it is like so obviously featured the idea that dumb people not realizing how dumb they are. Yes. Which is also like, I'm sure like you look across the room and you're thinking, Matt, a lot of similarities with the Chris character. (laughs) I usually am just thinking like podcasters who don't know how terrible they are. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a little meta. Yeah, I'm not saying that to be critical of the film because I think the film's highly entertaining. And I do think it's funny and it works as this pitch black comedy. And the acting is all like very electrifying because Friedkin at at this later stage in his career was more about two or three takes because he wanted spontaneity. Yeah. Which was completely different from earlier in his career where he was almost Kubrickian, you know, doing like millions of takes. Yeah. Because as he says himself, he was influenced by movies he thought were perfect. And so he thought you had to find perfection by redoing the same stuff over and over. And then later in his career was like, all right, well, I'm getting old. I don't have time for this shit. Ha, Let's try well, to make it more spontaneous. I, I did key in on something he said, though, about like how you lose the spontaneity after two takes because then you're now you've got an idea of how you want it to work and you're trying to just replicate that. But in those first couple, that's when it, it's something new and fresh. Yeah, which I think is something Clint Eastwood agrees with. Talking about McConaughey, and you, you talk about like some of the characters and their delivery and kind of like the, the pace of the movie and it's McConaughey, I, he he nails this whole like his delivery, this the way that it's like paced out. It's yeah. kind of like this slow, but like rhythmic delivery. Yeah, very methodical. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about McConaughey's career in a minute, but Killer Joe is the last feature film that William Friedkin has made. It's been ten years now. Probably not getting anything else. He's turning 86 later this year. I don't really know that there's going to be another feature film. I'm sure he thinks there is, but you have to be realistic. Again, yeah, probably not a lot of investors out there that are like, we need another Friedkin movie. And I think it's interesting to look back at his career, his like later stage career, starting in the 90s, and see where this all ended up. Because I definitely think you could have made the case that it was over in terms of giving us anything interesting or memorable and out of nowhere his last two films which were both collaborations with let's i think are great and among his best films for sure yeah bug i'm gonna have to revisit i haven't seen that since around the time it came out so he made the guardian in 1990 which i've never seen but is not a super well-liked little supernatural type movie blue chips in 94 hell yes Masterpiece. <laughs> Jade in 95, which is something that I think is up Friedkin's alley, but just for a variety of reasons didn't work. Didn't quite hit. Then he did some like TV stuff. I'm sort of deleting all of that. There was like TV movies in there and stuff. Rules of Engagement in the year 2000, which I actually did see in the theater somehow. I definitely watched it. I, I can't remember it like at all now. Neither can I. And then he... Followed that up with another Tommy Lee Jones collaboration, The Hunted. Yes. Is Benicio Del Toro in that, too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that movie. Both Rules of Engagement and that, that just seems like not movies William Friedkin would do. 
Yeah, it definitely seems director for hire type stuff. And then 2006 Bug, 2011 Killer Joe. This is the collaborations with Let's. This is just an out of nowhere end of career blast of energy that you don't really see a lot of other directors replicating when it gets to be the end of their careers. Yeah, yeah. Because this is like, to me, it's not as notorious as like Cruising and it's obviously not as successful as like The Exorcist or something. But I mean, these movies are as memorable as those movies in some ways. For sure. They're crazy. Well, he definitely is one of those great directors that's just making something memorable. And it's like more important to him (laughs) that it's like memorable. I mean, I don't know if shocking is always the right word, but it's something unexpected. It it seems like that's more important to him than whether or not people think it's good or bad. At this point, I think everybody is pretty well familiar with the reconnaissance, the mid-career shift in Matthew McConaughey's (laughs) life. Is that a term that people use? Yes. I remember watching this movie was because you were like, this is what kicked off that changed because i mean we were well this was from that time period i don't know if this is the first this is of that first year though so yeah up until 2009 the type of stuff that you were mostly getting from mcconaughey failure to launch yeah the romantic comedies the last one being ghosts of girlfriends past okay which i believe jennifer garner in is in maybe that seems right i never saw that they're all kind of the same yeah pretty safe movie star type movies but they're not critically acclaimed you're not going to win oscars for them correct no big deal really you might these days though he takes 2010 off there's nothing released and then all of a sudden he becomes one of the most serious actors out there for a stretch i don't know if that's necessarily continued i mean we both saw serenity oh yeah i don't know if (laughs) if every decision's been great but serenity is good though (laughs) no it isn't (laughs) 2011, The Lincoln Lawyer, Bernie, Killer Joe, all in the same year. Oh, yeah. None of those movies are huge hits by any stretch of the imagination, but all of a sudden the perception was starting to change. People were like, well, all these movies are kind of interesting, unique. He's playing characters, not just guy (laughs) in a romantic comedy. Not just very attractive man. I think The Lincoln Lawyer was probably like the biggest of the three in terms of like box office I'd success. I'd say definitely. But all of them earned praise and the perception's changing. And then 2012, the next year, you have The Paperboy, Mud, and Magic Mike. That's right. With Magic Mike being a huge hit. I don't know if The Paperboy was necessarily like critically loved. I, I kind of don't think it was. But again... It's a weird swing, though. It's oh, not yeah. just guy in romantic comedy. They're like, this movie is and weird it's dark. and crazy it's and fucked dark. Up, yeah, I love the his paper character boy. <laughs> in that movie is involved in some weird shit. <laughs> yeah, 2013, he wins the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club, and obviously that's the culmination of everything over the last couple yep. of years. And then he makes the small appearance in The Wolf of Wall Street, and then 2014, True Detective season one. Oh yeah, and Interstellar. Which, by the way, his name in Interstellar is Joe Cooper. Oh, shit. That's <laughs> his awesome. His name in Killer Joe is Joe Cooper. <laughs> Didn't realize that. And that's pretty much it. 2015 on, it's sort of hit or miss. There's some weird choices again. It's not all great. But now people think of him, though, as like a serious actor. Right. Whereas that was definitely not no, what people no. were thinking prior to this stretch. Killer Joe, the play, premiered 
August 3rd, 1993 in Evanston, Illinois, a black comedy set in a trailer home on the outskirts of Dallas, Texas. It all primarily took place in one room that sort of changed for the movie itself. I'd actually like to see the play. I'm not like a huge theater yeah. guy, but... Well, this th- seems like it would be a fairly <laughs> bombastic play. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it'd be a wild time. It basically ran from 93 onward at different places. One of the more noteworthy ones was an off-Broadway at the Soho Playhouse from October of 98 through June of 99, starring Scott Glenn I was going to say, Plummer. how about that dude from fucking Silence of the Lambs being <laughs> Yeah, and Amanda Plummer was in it. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm wondering if she, I guess she was Dottie, which okay. is weird because she would have been way older than, by that point, than Juno Temple. But, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing I think Tracy Letts was talking about, like the different age ranges of the characters, how they sort of mold to different things. Like once you cast one person, you have to sort of cast around that person. It's not like you cast in a vacuum. So if you cast Scott Glenn, who he says was like 50 years old or 60 years old. Yeah, he looked pretty old. Because I think he's like in his 80s now, and this was 20 years ago. So like, yeah, you have to adjust so they make Amanda Plummer be Dottie, who's not nearly as young as Juno Temple was right. in 2011. You know, you have to sort of mold it around it. At one point, Gershon was offered the part of Charla, which is the part she plays in the movie, in the play as well, but she said that she just couldn't imagine herself doing the chicken leg scene eight times a week on stage. Yeah. <laughs> You can and understand. for those of you who haven't seen the film, we'll get to the chicken leg scene later. But You might understand why it might not be palatable for some. It's the most notorious scene in the movie, and it is primarily the reason it's NC-17. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a wild scene. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It yeah. pulls no punches. Even like rewatching it for this podcast, I was blown away by how long it oh, is. Oh, dude. I know. And... I had just watched it a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. And I was still like, holy shit, this goes on forever. Well, of course, like the initial shock value has worn off for me. But I can remember when I watched this movie for the first time, just being taken to a level that I wasn't really ready to be taken to. <laughs> I just was not expecting that. Yeah, I will so, say that Gina Gershon is definitely a fearless actress. Absolutely. There's a lot of great performances in this movie. It, you have to give her so much credit the scene is insane what she's being asked to do is insane and she does it like i mean it's so believable <laughs> no you're not taken out of the scene at all you know what i mean it's you're <laughs> shocking but you're in it so let's get into it hopefully we'll find some joy talking about this i hope our listeners have checked this movie out it's available on hulu right yeah. now if you have hulu for free you can watch it it's a movie that I I always come back to now that I want to watch, and I, I had been putting it off because I knew we were going to be doing it for the show. So I was excited to revisit it. I do think you need to keep in mind that it is a little extreme, so be prepared mentally for that. And also, it is supposed to be a dark comedy. So not to get too wrapped up in it emotionally. <laughs> but I, it is fucked up. There's no oh, getting for sure. around that. That's the thing, like what you were alluding to, like letterbox people response, and I was talking about like satire, but it's like it goes beyond even satire. I just think like people take things so seriously. There's no room for things to be provocative. People aren't gonna be truly happy until all entertainment is like this generic, pre-approved, boring stuff. Nobody ever takes any chances. You're finally starting to see 
more entertainers. Finally, some of these people, like I know Donald Glover, like recently was like, you can't really take any chances. People are afraid. Yeah. Of different stuff. And I know that like you get pushback from that now from the Twitter mobs and whatnot, but I mean, you'd have to be insane to not realize that that's true. Like you, people are so overly afraid of everything that you're just going to end up with forgettable garbage, which is sort of where we're at. Yeah, really? Yeah. It's so rare that anything is like interesting. And you know what? This movie, <laughs> if it offends you, that's good. There should be things that offend people. That is like fine. That's art pushing the limits. Well, it also kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. of just like, if people like something that I don't like, I'm fine with it. I am totally fine with people being like, yeah, I watched Killer Joe. It's a little much. It's not for me. I would be like, all right, I get that. Yeah. I'm not like advocating for like no rules. I don't yeah. know that we need to necessarily like recreate Sallow or <laughs> things that are like Sallow. pushing the envelope to a level or like Pretty Baby or something. I think there's certain lines that I'm comfortable with not crossing anymore sure. in modern times, but Something like A Killer Joe is nowhere even close to that, in my opinion. I think it's all within the boundaries of what should be considered fair play for art. As I look around trying to find where the sallow poster is on your wall. (laughs) I'm not Gasper, no. (laughs) Oh, he's another. He's like Friedkin on steroids in terms of wanting people to just... (laughs) Yeah, well, that is the, that is the thing. We're as Americans, we're not really as used to it. I think there's definitely more foreign filmmakers like Lars von Trier oh, yeah. or Gaspar Noe who are always pushing the envelope. But American filmmakers, I think, are way too afraid to do that now. Definitely, there's really no American so, equivalent I mean, of those guys. With the reaction, it's just not worth it. Well, yeah, you're not going to get funding, and then you, you know if you somehow did. You'd get canceled immediately. Disney's not going to hire you to do something. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to get to work on some stupid Marvel thing. (laughs) The movie opens with a thunderstorm, a torrential downpour. It seems to be the middle of the night, something like that. Dog just barking uncontrollably, which indicates that we're in a trashy situation. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely the world of pit bulls on chains, fires burning in barrels. (laughs) Trailer parks, things of that nature. Oh, yes. 22-year-old drug dealer Chris Smith comes to the house, shared by his father Ansel and stepmother Sharla. Quite an introduction to the Gina Gershon character, I have to say. Chris is played by Emile Hirsch, and Ansel is Thomas Hayden Church. Sharla is Gina Gershon. Sharla answers the door bottomless. Yeah, right away you're like, okay. I'm into this movie. Her giant <laughs> fake bush that is a merkin is for sure right in yeah. your face. And they definitely have it set up where there's like steps leading into the trailer. So Chris is like face level right. with it. And this is his stepmother. For some reason, he's like upset by this. I don't know if Gina Gershon was my stepmother. I don't know if I'd be upset with this. I'd probably be over all the time. Yeah. Adele like, oh. doesn't seem like much fun. <laughs> It's a wild scene going on over there. And then her response to this, I didn't know who it was, meaning like, well, I didn't know it was you, so what's the big deal? And he's like, this how does that make it better? Just how I answer the door. <laughs> and apparently it's just how she hangs out. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Well, I think it's supposed to be she gets out of bed. Yeah, I think yeah. it's supposed to be late at night. Chris's mother, Adele, has thrown him out, and every character, including Chris's father, Ansel, and 
stepmother, Sharla. Oh, yeah. They keep saying, what did you do, hit her again? Is this one thing that they all are in agreement on, though, that none of them are particularly big fans of Adele? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the casualness of them asking that question. (laughs) As if it's completely normal to just hit your mother. Yikes. (laughs) Tensions flare with Charla pretty quick. They're, like, fighting each other. I still don't know that she's wearing pants at this point. (laughs) Ansel is dim-witted. He's got this hangdog life. I made a joke about me being like Chris earlier, but really, it's Ansel for me. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of figured you would relate to that character. Oh, yeah. Just clueless. <laughs> Never like overly emotional either. Right. Just sort of always like, ugh. We see Dottie, Chris's sister, overhearing all of the commotion in her bedroom. Dottie's played by Juno Temple. And per the original play, so just going by that, Chris is supposed to be 22, Sharla early 30s, Ansel 38. So you can already do the math there. Yeah, yeah. Dottie 20. Those are what their ages are supposed to be, according to the original play. It's not super addressed in the course of the film, but I thought it was worth noting just to see how young Ansel would have been when he had kids, like why he's such a terrible father. I mean, the family is fucked. <laughs> yes. I, I think you're going to learn that this over the is, course uh, of this podcast. Dysfunction not in front of us. Good people. No. The kids are terrible. The parents are terrible. Everybody's terrible. Except maybe Dottie, who's sort of like an innocent. But Dottie is one of the more interesting characters maybe that we've ever talked about. I She's can't innocent, really but, figure uh, out what her deal is. There's still a darkness there. Well, she just bottles it all up. Her and past, It yes. comes out. Right. It's a boiling rage from potentially some events from her youth. Yeah, potentially, but we don't know. Like, it's never really clear exactly what the deal is. Well, certainly the thing with her mother fed some of this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So Chris doesn't have anywhere to stay. He wants to stay there. And then he says to Ansel that they need to talk. So Chris gets Ansel to come out to a strip club with him and lays it out. Adele stole cocaine from him and sold it to fix her car. And now he's got nothing to pay back. His dealer, Digger Soames, who's sort of like a Winter's Bone style hillbilly yeah. gangster type character. That's right. Yeah. Chris is trying to say to Ansel, isn't it like 5K or something is what he owes? 6,000. 6,000. But he's kind of like, look, Ansel, if you can just give me a grand, that'll like buy me some time. And he kind of asked multiple times and Ansel just has to keep being like, I don't have it. Like, where do you think I have even $1,000? Look around you. Well, I think he's doing that on purpose. Yeah. He believes Digger will have him killed if he can't manage to cough up the 6,000. Ansel doesn't have that, of course. He doesn't have anything to loan him. And I think Chris knew that would be the case because he's got or he's already he got not? something else yeah, yeah, on right. his mind. Yes. He's just sort of like wants to build up to it. Yeah, he's always playing Ansel like a fiddle. Like he's always sort of guiding him down a certain paths For sure. to get him to think a certain way. And it's not too difficult. No. He is a puppet. Because as we talked about, all the characters are extraordinarily dumb, but Ansel is probably the dumbest. Absolutely. (laughs) Hence the most relatable. I did think it was sort of crazy that he's like, I just need a thousand, a thousand could hold him off. And Ansel's like, I've never had a thousand dollars in my whole life. And I'm like, he's fucking someone that looks like Gina Gershon. And he lives in a trailer and he's never had a thousand dollars. I know you are like, man, being poor would be great. In that scenario. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Chris tells Ansel that Adele has a $50,000 life insurance policy and that Dottie is the sole beneficiary. Naturally, the assumption is that Dottie will just share the money. (laughs) Yeah. So Chris then proceeds to tell Ansel about Joe Cooper, a police detective who has a side career as a contract killer, with the plan being that they can pay Joe with some of the insurance money and then split the rest. If I didn't know where this was heading, this would be the part where I'm normally like, why does he have all this information? But that actually is part of the plot, so we don't have to get into that. Yeah. I never really questioned it the first time. I guess that's true. My immediate thing was what comes up later, which is the stuff that Joe grills Sharla and to a lesser extent Ansel about. I'm like, you can already tell that Chris is in over his head. Yes. This seems like a terrible idea. He's a police detective. I know. Well, I guess that is people. true. Yeah, you do get the sense that Chris knows like seedy, shady people, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, <laughs> how serious is that business? It's like yeah, he's going to, oh, we're going to pay him with the insurance money. My first thought would be, how long does it take to get an insurance payout? Well, I have yeah. no idea. Right. So you're just going to assume and that I this guy is going to be this fine with that? also becomes a part of the plot. You don't think that any money is required up front for something like this? Yeah. Even somebody that has no experience with anything like this and doesn't know anything about it, but it I, also I start to feel like weird uneasy about it. That the Joe character is a cop, but he's also a contract killer, but that that's also like a known thing. Like you wouldn't think a lot of people know this. That's the underworld connection yeah. part of it. That's probably what Ansel would assume. Right. It's like, well, my son's a drug dealer. He probably knows shady people. Yep. I do think that there have been plenty of real Joe Coopers, though. Police officers that were also contract killers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think that if you go into the true crime files out there, I think that yeah. that's definitely based on real people. I guess you can get like connected pretty easily. Well, they just know how to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, they're probably thinking I might be the one assigned to investigate like, uh, it. Too old to die young, too. Yeah. Chris says that Joe charges $20,000. This conversation takes place at a strip club, and then they still are talking about it as they work their way back home, still discussing the plan. And then Dottie ends up overhearing this plan, but she tells them that she thinks it's a good idea. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Dottie and try to figure this out. By the way, I, I will say, Lindsay didn't watch all of this movie with me, and not because she wasn't like... I can't watch this bullshit. So she was like in the room like during this part and actually like did laugh out loud when Dottie says, let's do it. And Chris turns to Angela and is like, see, he makes a comment like <laughs> it is a good idea. Yeah. So Dottie is 20 years old. She lives at home at this point. This is the first time we've heard her speak, but we have heard characters talk about her because she is supposedly the sole beneficiary of this insurance policy. They describe her as dumb or not really there. Her own father speculates that he thinks that she's a virgin, but not like in a good way. More like there's something wrong with her. Yeah, that's the way they're acting. They never come out and say exactly what they think is wrong with her, but something. And it's certainly sheltered. We never really understand her character in this movie in the sense that there's no explanation as like, okay, she has some sort of learning disability or anything like that that's never really said 
I don't really know if that's supposed to be the case. Well, it feels like if there is something wrong, it's probably undiagnosed. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that there actually is in the scope of the play or in the movie. I I think like you could interpret it if you want, but I think the idea is that she's just this innocent, sheltered, strange person, but she's like highly perceptive too, but which the other characters do not realize. No. And she actually seems to know more about what's going on than any of them at any given moment, yet they treat her like she's a moron. But you said it where it almost feels like she has a supernatural presence as well because she doesn't hear like half these conversations. Yeah, there's like a mild psychic ability that she just sort of knows who's calling and what's being said sometimes. But the other characters just sort of look past it. Right, yeah. (laughs) According to William Friedkin's memoir or bi- autobiography or whatever, Jennifer Lawrence was like begging to play this part. Oh wow! But the scheduling like didn't work out for it or something like that. Okay. I don't know. How, that would have been such. That's like a sliding doors moment for not yeah, only yeah. J Law but America in general. Because do you think she would have been willing to do like nudity and stuff at that point in her career for this? I don't it's see how you would. Do this role. It's not it. like she was a big enough star. She, she, oh, yeah. we're talking like she had been in Winter's Bone probably when they were casting. This. Well, That's yeah, which there was a Winter's Bone trailer on this Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't think she was like a big star yet. Yeah, I know, but I don't know, man. If she had done this movie, there's a chance that she would not have done like Hunger Games or something. Oh, no, that's true. Like it would have just changed everything. That's right. Probably. <laughs> but I think Juno Temple is like perfect for this. Absolutely. Because she's no an question. actress that's like familiar to a lot of people, but I don't know that a lot of people are like super up on her career. Yeah. They're not like associating her with other parts. This is probably going to come off the wrong way, but I feel like both Gina Gershon and Juno Temple always have like a little bit of a trashiness that they can bring to characters that's super believable. Um, yeah, I know what you mean, I guess. I mean, I'm sure they would be offended <laughs> yeah, by it, yeah. but. <laughs> I think like both of them are stunning. In Absolutely, this movie. <laughs> Gina Gershon is like, I, I mean, I, I find myself just thinking about her all the time. <laughs> yeah, she's sort of intimidating though. Yeah. Like, I don't know that a normal guy could just like handle it. Absolutely not. <laughs> and it, it, that's the one on cameo that. Oh if yeah. If somebody sent me a birthday present cameo of Gina Gershon, <laughs> I would be like losing my mind. Yeah, I guess we can talk a little bit more about Juno Temple as we go, but she was definitely like an obsession for me for a while. I was like, I'm look, I'm staring at her on your wall right now, like one of the most prominently featured posters. Yeah, from the movie <laughs> Horns. That's like a special UK poster that I got shipped from England. <laughs> but I definitely really think cool she's uh, she's underrated here. though. Is oh yeah, I think she's great in this movie. You can't even begin to think that she's British or definitely. something. I think she's totally believable, and I think she's great Like in a lot of other movies, some of which are probably beneath her in terms of her talent, but she's still great in them. I would agree. She's always good. I kind of find it baffling that she wasn't able to yeah. really hit like a huge part. She made some... Uh, I mean, she's in The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> yeah, the smallest <laughs> part ever. Right. Okay. All right. One thing, though, that we learn almost right away that first night is that Chris has a lot of weird hang-ups about his sister, and he has a dream where she is in the hall and yeah. is suddenly naked doing kung fu. That is strange. I've never had a dream about my sister naked. I can tell you that. I Either of my sisters. Yes. 
So I think that's a pretty big indication that, that something's up here. A lot of issues here. And that is definitely something that I didn't really pick up on for some reason the first time I watched this. I because guess I guess I didn't really know that that was a dream or not, but then she does disappear. Yes. So it is supposed to be a dream, but... It does feel strange. I guess I just took his protectiveness of her as like normal I would later agree. in the you, movie. And some of that I do think is the Emile Hirsch performance. It is 100% viable, like his wanting to protect her. Yeah. Well, I think we were talking about how this movie has a lot of things that you pick up on second, third, fourth viewings that you do Unquestionably. There's a lot of like subtlety to it because it's such an in-your-face, yes. bombastic, violent movie that you might miss some of these little things they slide in there. And I'm like finding myself Googling the weirdest shit as I'm watching it for this podcast because I'm like, well, what do people say about this idea or that yeah. idea? Is there anybody picking up on this? You know, weird words like incest being thrown around or is Dottie a virgin? Like that kind right. of stuff. Like what are they implying in this scene? And you never get like concrete answers. Yeah, yeah. You just sort of have to imagine what they're going for. But we'll we'll cover some yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have some questions about some scenes. What? What are you? I mean, what do you do? I'm a detective. Really? Mm-hmm. Like Magnum P.I.? No. He's a private detective. I'm in the Dallas Police Department. He ain't real either. No. I'm real. I read it's nothing like them shows with car chases and all. A lot of paperwork. I read some policemen go their whole lives without shooting their guns. Probably true. You ever draw on your gun? Oh, sure. You ever shot anybody? Yes. Joe arrives at the trailer to meet with Chris. And so this is our first time seeing Joe, played by Matthew McConaughey. He's like a cowboy dressed in black. Yeah, he is a detective for the Dallas Police Department. I do think that his character is sort of full of shit, but that's harder to even detect because he comes off as like this badass. And he's definitely like, yeah. smarter than everybody else in this movie but that's not hard to do and he's definitely physically intimidating which is also not really hard to do right. but i don't know are we supposed to buy that he's like this cool customer who i don't i don't believes I think chris and then shows up at his trailer like it seems kind of low rent yeah yeah and risky i agree i feel like he's trying to be cooler than he actually is i don't know I, you gotta get the sense that maybe he's actually kind of a loser well, he's definitely a murderer. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, I think a lot of murderers were pretty big losers. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I think it's like right out there on Front Street uh, that he's a loser. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Is like, how many people has he killed? Like, is he some giant badass? And like, I mean, we'll figure out. I don't want to like give away the whole movie as to like where Chris even hears I don't know. Yet, I mean, but... even his whole thing over Dottie, he seems kind of pathetic. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's weird, though, that he's just like, yeah, I'll just go to these people's trailer. I've never right. met them. I mean, I will say, listen, if he's putting up a front, he seems like a badass. Yes. Chris isn't there yet, so Joe gets to know Dottie in the meantime. And the whole thing with Joe and Dottie is very strange, and it's 
unlike a lot of other movies, on the surface, you'd be like, well, maybe this is like smooth talk or something where you have this older guy, younger girl dynamic. It's like predator prey. The audience is definitely feeling like uneasiness. But Dottie herself never really seems uncomfortable at all. No, no. Because Dottie's like impossible to read, which again, the audience might be thinking, okay, she's so naive. She doesn't know the danger. But that is a very like first time watch surface level viewing of it because I don't think I felt that way in like later viewings. Like maybe the first time I'm like, oh, she's like a child. She doesn't know what's going on. Right. This is weird. And then later you're like, no, she has like a confidence. Yeah. She's so different from how the other characters actually perceive her that I think you can sort of convince the audience that she's one way. Yeah. And then you watch it and you're like, I don't know. She seems to be sort of in control of like what she wants to do. She doesn't ever seem like forced to do anything she doesn't want to do. Except for wear a dress, which she then ultimately doesn't do. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I heard an awful screaming coming from inside in the back. It was pitch dark. So I followed the sound of the scream back to a bedroom. And I didn't know what the hell to expect. Yeah. When I opened the door, suddenly, just, there's this, this huge, fat man was on top of me, screaming and kicking and clawing. And, oh, my God. And the thing was, there was nobody else even there. And he wasn't trying to hurt me. He wanted me to help him. Why? See, he got into a fight with his girlfriend, right? She'd been having an affair, so in order to teach her a lesson, that's what he said. Teach her a lesson. He doused his genitals with lighter fluid and he set them on fire. You believe that? It's true. That poor, miserable bastard set his own genitals on fire just to teach his girlfriend a lesson. I guess he showed her. I wonder if she ever got over it. Was he all right? No. No, he was not all right. He set his genitals on fire. When they talked about that casting for McConaughey, they did talk about casting someone that people liked. I think they needed you to feel like there was something there that this guy wasn't going to be just be repulsive because I don't know if you could buy these scenes that way. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I definitely got what they were saying too. Where if you went for like an older guy or a less attractive guy or a less known guy. The scenes could then come across as sort of more horrifying. Yeah, but I also think that that's due to Temple's performance, not yeah, just McConaughey. True, the way that yeah. she sort of navigates these scenes, you sort of buy this fearlessness. And even though the Joe Cooper character seems like this sadistic lunatic, he does have this weird softness in the scenes that he's with her. Yeah, although I think you could definitely read that as like icky, though. Well, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's like all fake. I mean, well, we need, we should put that out there right now. I mean, if you weren't thinking that <laughs> what was going on between Joe and Dottie was icky, it without question is. Yeah, because he does come across as like overly tender with her, but then 
he clearly thinks of her as like property for sure that she for just sure. should oh, yeah do yeah he, he wants. outright says it in this conversation where they first meet Dottie reveals that her mother once tried to kill her by smothering her with a pillow when she was a baby great first date conversation I've had some. Well, this is them. They're not on a date. This is just when they meet. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. She remembers it happening, though, is the weird takeaway. Yes, right. Because he asked her, like, how how do you know this? And she's like, I remember it. Yeah, because I think you're expecting, like, Chris told me or something. My mama tried to kill me when I was real little. She put a pillow over my face because she cared more about herself than her little baby. She didn't love me like a mama should love a little baby. And she was happy because she thought she'd done it. And then I couldn't grow into something better than she'd been. Had ever been. She hadn't done it. She didn't send me back to him. She just made me sick, made me not be for a while. But then I was. And she was sad that I was. And I always will be. How do you know that? Know what? That your mother tried to kill you. Because I remember. And this is the first indication, along with her knowing that the phone call is for Joe when the phone rings, that Dottie's more intuitive and observant and possibly clairvoyant than anyone else in this fucked up family. <laughs> because she's the only it's one not that knows normal what's going on. to be like, I remember something from when I was a baby. Right. Because it's a movie, I guess. Because if yeah. someone told me this in real life, I'd be like, I kind of don't the believe only this. Way but in a movie, is, I completely believe what she's saying. The only way you could like spin this in a way that maybe I would buy is like because of like the trauma. But I still don't know how. I mean, it's just like such no, a memory. No, you would Well, I got news for you. My mom. <laughs> I don't believe <laughs> it. Out. Again, the whole phone call from Chris being like, "Hey, I." My dad couldn't get out of work. Can you come here and meet us at this pool hall or whatever? It's just further evidence that he's in over his head. This is exactly what I was talking about before when he's thinking that he can just negotiate when he's going to give him the money. Now he's saying, could you meet us here? No, this wait, thing, meet us here. Actually, you just kind of get caught up in it, but it doesn't seem like it makes any sense that they would organize this. It, Joe goes to the trailer, goes in the trailer, but then they're not there. And then they were like, going to have to meet you somewhere else. Yeah. So they meet at this abandoned pool hall. The price is actually going to be 25000 to do the hit. And that's, that's a, not an issue. The issue is the payment up front. Yeah, although you, you are like, why isn't that more of an issue? At this point, you're talking about a significant What, are they going to negotiate with no, this No, I know, but you are just like, man, this is just like such a significant cut of the money we're expecting to get that we're planning on splitting four this ways. This was a guy that did never had $1,000 in his whole life. I know, I know. <laughs> but Chris had $6,000 worth of assets recently. <laughs> The entire plan almost falls through when Joe insists on payment in advance. Of course, Chris and Ansel are broke. However, as Joe is about to leave, he spots Dottie, who brought him to this pool hall, twirling in the streets. I'm not really sure what. She's just sort of dancing by herself in the street, twirling. And it's as if an idea suddenly pops into his head. Now, of course, this is what pushes the movie forward and gives us a story, but it also serves as evidence to what i was just saying oh yeah he comes across as like this badass dude no negotiation no budging on this stuff and now he's like well wait a minute yeah i have an i have a counter proposal and it's like does that really fit with like this image he's projecting like he's taking this big risk over something like so unnecessary if he's as big of a badass as he seems to want us to believe 
wouldn't he be able to just figure out how to get Dottie and not have to do this pro bono work? Yeah, I would say so. He offers to take Dottie as a, quote, retainer until the insurance money comes through. Yeah, which leads to a little bit of a conversation like, what exactly do you mean by take? <laughs> no, the- <laughs> Yeah, that's Ansel, and he's yeah, just no. saying, like, and what Chris does he is mean like, retainer? What do you think he means? <laughs> yeah, the implications of this are sort of crazy, although it doesn't actually seem like he takes Dottie anywhere. That's true. It's more Dottie and him just have to spend time together, and she has to go along with it. Although he starts being a more frequent guest to the trailer. Yeah, but... I will say that the idea of him like taking her as a retainer it never really comes to fruition. It's more, you guys have to pimp her out to me. That's it's right. sort of the yeah. unsaid thing. That's the handshake agreement. But as Joe puts it as he's leaving, he says, like, let me know if she she wants to do it. So he's like trying to put it as like her choice. So in a lot of ways, he is sort of like Arnold friend. Where he's true. trying to like yeah. come up with ways to like make it her choice. From his perspective, he's trying to seem like not the bad guy, but Ansel and Chris, on the other hand, of course, are ends up end up being more than willing to pimp Go out their naive sister yeah. slash daughter. <laughs> this is Ansel's daughter. Oh, I know. It's so fucking dark. <laughs> yeah, I want my innocent virginal daughter to spend time with a hitman but that's the thing on ansel he's like never invested in anything he wasn't really that invested in this plan but then he's willing to go along with whatever turn well, it now takes. he's probably got his mind on that money that's a true. little bit yeah yeah and plus you know fucking charla's all worked up about it well now. yeah he was that's adamant that they're dividing the money into four parts and that charla's getting an even cut which is kind of weird because she doesn't really contribute anything to this Right, but I guess I mean Joe points it out. Ansel later. knows that Yeah. <laughs> he needs to have her on board and you know, it's just gonna it's gonna be easier for him than if, if he just put fights for her rights right at the beginning. Right. And Chris is so desperate for the money that he's willing to just include Agree her to even anything. though he doesn't want to. Although at some point it feels like at the rate this is going, his cut is gonna be less than what he needs to pay back. It's going to be, yeah. It's what crossed be my mind was, I was like, is this all straight cash? This is not like taxable income? I don't know. I'm not really you know? sure. It's, n- it's never brought up. I mean, when they eventually get the check, it's for the amount. But that would have crossed my mind. I'm like, this is all straight cash, homie. We don't actually see it, but I guess the implication here is that the family outside of Dottie starts organizing this idea to give her to Joe in some way. Dottie shows up at Charlotte's job, which is at a pizza place, and she is clearly cheating on Ansel, and this is the first indication that we get of that. She's on the phone with another man. She's going Almost through like photographs. Almost flaunting it in front of Dottie at, some, at one point, too. And not no, really. she doesn't know that Dottie's there. Dottie okay, sneaks yeah. up on her, and then she's That's pretending right. she's on yes. the phone with her friend. Right. But Dottie knows. Yeah, yeah. That's one of those times where Dottie just knows. She's like, oh, was that your boyfriend? Yep. And she keeps bringing it up, like, oh, you should have a handsome boyfriend and charlotte's like shut up yeah <laughs> stop saying that <laughs> yeah she's looking at photographs those photographs are going to come up later she's on the phone with somebody we don't know who but again Dottie just knows things takes everything in stride too knows this information doesn't seem to be upset by it Dottie has such a weird vibe that it's hard to even explain it <laughs> She seems so innocent, and yet when things are revealed to her, she's just sort of like, yep, 
oh, we're going to kill my mama now. Okay. Yeah, no big deal. And then when they're talking about Joe, because Charlotte's trying to like feel it out a little bit, see how this is going to go. Right. Dottie says he has, what, what did she say? Hard eyes or I, I don't remember painful the eyes yeah, or something. Yeah, something like that. And Charlotte goes, huh? And Dottie goes, what? It's like a great oh, exchange. Yeah. <laughs> where they, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they're secretly planning a private dinner with just Dottie and Joe. They want to get Dottie a pretty dress and everything. But Dottie is unaware. She thinks that just Joe's coming over for a family dinner and that everyone's going to be there. Yeah. Which there will be one of later. There's a pretty funny scene where... Ansel shows up at the pizza place and he wants beer money, so they go down to get Charlotte's purse. And Charlotte's like kind of berating him, like, you need to tell her what is happening because Charlotte's like, look, she's gonna have to fuck this dude, right? Right, she needs to know that because she's gonna disappoint him. If she's like, we can't let Dottie fuck this up. <laughs> oh, gosh, well, we don't, that's why you're like, man, these people. <laughs> that's basically what she's saying, like, yeah. you have to make her aware of what she's expected, right? To do. Definitely. And then she goes, quote, she don't put two and two together like you, me, and Chris. <laughs> which would probably be an important line for later in the movie. And which is so funny because every time the three of those people act like someone's dumber than them. Oh, yeah. It's A, not true, and then it hilariously blows up in their face later <laughs> yeah. where it's proven that no one could be dumber than these people. Right. <laughs> But the evidence now is that Charlotte's in on the plan. She knows about Joe. She knows about what's happening because she's really not in that opening scene at all where Correct. they're discussing it. But now she's in on it too. And so he almost has. You think he has to have like a debrief with her after the Chris conversations, you know? Yeah. And then she has to be like, "Oh, this is a good idea. In fact, I should get a cut." Yeah. Well, she's definitely pushing things in a certain direction, right? For sure. Dottie starts freaking out about the dress when Ansel tells her that it's just going to be her and Joe for dinner. There's a fight about it. It gets weird. This is like one of the f only times that like Ansel is overly animated, and he's mostly a sympathetic character because he's so out of it yeah. that you feel Lacks like people are taking advantage of him. But this scene, you're like, dude, what the fuck? He's like grabbing her and like trying to make her wear this dress when she starts freaking out about it. And this is one of those instances where Chris shows up and he's like overprotective and they like intervene, intervening and everything. And it's very strange, but again, you can sort of buy it. Like, okay, he's like her brother. He's like protecting her. Ansel's like kind of being a dick. I don't right. really understand it, but it definitely sticks out like a sore thumb because Ansel usually doesn't act. That's like true. This. Yeah. This is the most emotional he'll be through the whole movie. Dottie's room is more in line with like what you would imagine like a twelve or thirteen year old girl's room to be like. Yeah, not for sure. A twenty year old. They're She's hitting got, like, the child like Justin Bieber stuff on her bit. wall. Yeah. So she's in her room crying and freaking out. Ansel and Chris leave right as Joe arrives, and then Joe tries to coax Dottie out of her bedroom. We then cut to see Sharla meeting with her boyfriend in secret at a motel. We just sort of see this guy from behind or whatever. There you go. Poor Ansel. Dottie eventually comes out. She has prepared a tuna casserole dinner. And this is like a completely normal scene. <laughs> <laughs> like, just this whole thing where he's like, may I serve? And she's like, That's yes, right. please. Yeah. And they're acting like they're... Joe has some like weird tendencies around like what he thinks a sit-down dinner should be like. Yeah. That will 
peek their head out a few times. Hey, tuna casserole. Yes. May I serve? Please. Thank you. Mm. I'd really like to see that dress. It wasn't right. May I see it anyway? How are you going to kill my mama? Oh, that's not appropriate dinner conversation, Donnie. Unless you poison her. <laughs> Will you be the detective who investigates? Probably not. Sometimes. That problem? That's a convenience. This is all very weird. She tells him that she's a virgin and he says, I know. But they're pretending like as if they're having like a regular dinner date type thing. And then it takes like a strange turn when Dottie starts talking about this dress she didn't want to wear. And Joe keeps insisting that he wants to see her in the dress. So she goes against the dress and then that's right. she's going to go put it on. Then he's like, no, I want you to put it on here in front of me. She starts to and then... Joe turns around and asks her to basically strip naked, like, one thing at a time. She does, and then put the dress on. She does that, too. He then asks her to, like, come up behind him, and they're doing, like, this reach-around scenario where she's, like, reaching into the front of his pants. Ah, yes. I do remember that. Seems like a very specific (laughs) fantasy that he has going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's definitely dictating what's happening here. And then they switch places, and then they're having sex from behind, I guess. But there's a lot of odd dialogue in this scene where this actually led to some of the controversy with this movie, although it turns out that I think people were misinterpreting it because of the way that the the Joe character phrases a question. It's sort of confusing because he says, how old are you now to Dottie? And she says, 12. And so people were like, well, wait a minute. Is her character supposed to be 12 years old? Which is this not. Is dark. Right. <laughs> and then he does say, like, what was his name or whatever? And she says Marshall, and that was the name of some boyfriend or something she had when she was a kid. Yeah. Although the age doesn't match up because she said third grade or something when she talked to Sharla about okay. it. And you're not 12 in third no. grade. I don't know. what. It's hard to even understand. But – This is one of those scenes in the movie where you're like, okay, they're definitely implying something dark. For sure. In the past. And I had to rewind it, not just for the nudity. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, I need to understand, what what did they say? Because I was like, wait a minute, does she say she is or isn't a virgin? And she definitely says she is. For sure. But it seems like they're recreating something, and she's bringing up some memory. And so my question's that I just jotted down was Dottie abused in the past or not abused necessarily. Did something happen in the past? It feels like you could draw that conclusion and slash, or was it by Chris? And does that have something to do with like their past? I don't know. I definitely think for speculation articles were speculating on it, but I don't know that anyone really knows for sure. But it's something is being implied with the Chris character for sure. Certainly an unconventional love scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Chris tries to win Digger's money at an OTB. 
Just another sad ploy. <laughs> what a plan. <laughs> oh, God. Doesn't he bet $1,000? Like, where did he get that No, from? I know. That's what I was thinking. Because if there was any truth to the, if I could just get $1,000, that would keep him at bay. Yeah, I think that's another layer to it, too, where he like has a little bit more money than he was letting on right. or something. I don't know. Every character in this movie is a liar. But yeah, just a complete <laughs> idiot. But yeah, I mean, this is a sign, again, it's just like this desperate ploy, but just completely the wrong way to try to go about it. Like, I'm just going to gamble and hope that <laughs> it works out. He loses his bet and then is met outside by Digger and his men, and there's a chase... They eventually catch up to him. Digger's played by an actor named Mark McCauley, who is one of the more interesting-looking guys I've ever seen. I'd say so. Definitely has a distinctive presence in this movie, even Pretty though he's only in the one scene. Memorable in a small appearance. They have this insane, friendly conversation. I know. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to have these guys kick the shit out of you. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if you don't have my money in a couple of days, he's I'm like, going to wrap you in electrical tape and bury you 10 feet deep. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'll see you. I'll tell my wife you said hi or whatever. Yeah. That's how he like finishes it. And then Digger's men kick the shit out of Chris. Yeah. And this movie is definitely punctuated by explosions of bloody violence. And they turn into it rather than yeah. away from it. And that was one of Letts's notes to the actors and to Friedkin before they started on this movie about the violence being like crucial. That that always got a reaction from the audience. That it was important to accentuate it. That that is what yeah. made things effective in a certain way. Well, Chris is definitely relentlessly beat up. Twice. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> right. It's also like, I feel like you kind of don't know how much time is like passing because this has to be like jumping around a little bit because we were going from like Joe and Dottie's first date. I mean, it's not like that's the night when Chris shows up at the trailer, right? That's not the way I was interpreting it. What do you mean when he shows up at the trailer? When Chris, oh, the first night. After Chris gets beat up. He oh, no, no, because it's yeah. daylight. Right. Yeah, I think time's been passing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because Joe is in a certain stage of undress when Chris shows up at the trailer. Yeah, completely nude Joe <laughs> is just in the house, and it seems to signify that some sort of relationship has formed between he and Dottie during this time period. And I like how the family's like concerned for like a minute and they're like, oh, well, all right. Well, the Joe's just like part of the family now. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. This sexual jealousy that's like so obvious and apparent that Chris has for Joe now. It just bothers him so much. And yes, it is a common thing in film and TV and in stories or whatever where fathers or brothers are like oddly protective of daughters or sisters and stuff like that and uh, and joe is like a shitty guy right. but they're all shitty it's not you just know from know. this text that it's not because of morals yeah yeah that's never like something the audience is feeling oh he just doesn't want his sister with this type of guy right like, that's not what's happening here at all no you definitely don't get that vibe it's more I don't want this guy to fuck my sister because it should be me. <laughs> it's like Joe Dirt. For whatever reason, though, Chris is much more concerned with what's going on with Dottie and Joe than he is with Digger. I feel like Digger should be the top priority. Really? Yet he never really seems that worried about it. No, in fact, they've kind of been letting him off the hook a little bit already. Yeah, like they so much like, time is You passing. asked for a week, we gave you... Three like, weeks. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, And he's still just like, 
not really trying to figure this out. At one point, Chris almost calls it off. You want me off the job? Say the word. When are you planning on doing it? Tonight. Really? So you'd be leaving tomorrow then? No, no, no. The retainer is for the money. I'm not leaving until I get my money. I don't like that. Oh, I don't care. I don't want you near my sister. I don't care. And if I tell you the deal's off? Then I'll leave right now, and you'll never see me again. Your call. They're at some sort of abandoned theme park at like a roller coaster or right. something. And then immediately after that, he does call it off. He shows up where Joe works, which again... Seems insane. ...is another time where you're like, he doesn't seem to have any clue what he's involved with. And at I this actually, point. the way that scene plays, it always feels like Joe's gonna like take him somewhere and flip out on him for because it's like this kind of slow, brooding, quiet. He's just like get in the car. Yeah, for all he knows, that could be like a rule. Like how you showed up here, now I'm gonna kill you. Right. No warning. That's what I mean. Like, Chris is just doing things where you're like, even someone like me who's putting, outside of this world entirely knows this is a bad idea. Yeah, this is putting a lot at risk now. He shows up at the police station. They get in his car. He begs Joe for it to be over, to not do it. He's like, I can't do it. He's saying that he doesn't want to like have his mom killed, but I, th- I think it's obvious it's about Dottie. But it's too late. Joe has already killed Adele, and she's in the trunk of his car. With Chris's reluctant help, Joe puts her body into her car in front of this random barbecue restaurant and then torches it. And it's weird to me because... I didn't really understand everything that he does here with the alcohol and the weed. And then, I mean, you would think her body's getting, like, incinerated. Well, yeah, later Chris does say that they didn't do an autopsy because there was nothing to even do it on. But maybe that's just in case it gets put out too fast or something. Yeah. But the thing I didn't understand was it was light outside. Oh, I know. When Chris shows up at the police station. So even though How okay, far did they drive? It gets dark and then there's another truck at this restaurant and all of the neon signs are on. I'm like, is this Somebody's restaurant? Somebody's in there open? having a beer. Yeah. yeah. They just look out the window like, <laughs> what's going on out there? That is sort of a unexplained weird. I know, moment. that is because it like it doesn't seem like it's that late. They do the trunk pop. Yeah. Unless he took her like way out of town or something, yeah. but I don't know. They don't really ever explain that. I had some questions around this scene. Because you have a pool hall in this movie that clearly hasn't been open in years. You have that amusement park that's like abandoned. You have that chase sequence through all those like rundown abandoned buildings, yeah. and yet that restaurant looks open. Well, they're definitely like <laughs> cruising out of town or into town, I guess, because they go on the highway. Yeah, but, I mean, did it, was it hours that they were in the car? I don't car? know. Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it would be that late. And it seems like that restaurant is open. Yeah. Ansel and Sharla are in the insurance office. There's a funny little moment where there's, like, a loose thread on his suit jacket. And it's like Charlotte bothering pulls him. it. Yeah. And his entire sleeve, like, falls off. Yeah, I know. Scene. That is, it kind of just sums up Ansel. <laughs> Like, he's got this suit jacket. He kind of looks mildly presentable, even though he's still wearing, like, a shitty hat with yeah. it. But it's the most presentable he's looked. And he's just kind of, like, keeps looking at his shoulder because he can kind of see this one string. They're so stupid, though. They're sitting in an insurance office on the day of the funeral. Oh, I know. 
do these people have no sense? <laughs> Could right. they be any more obvious? Yeah, yeah. Ansel and Charlotte discover that the beneficiary of Adele's life insurance policy is actually Rex, her boyfriend, not Dottie. Under questioning from Ansel, Chris admits he originally learned oh, the no. details about the policy from Rex, who also just so happened to tell him about Joe oh, as gosh. well. Yeah. Ansel realizes that Rex duped Chris into killing Adele or having her killed. And almost as like a bonus with the possible idea that Joe would potentially take care of the loose ends after the fact. Meaning, not only is Joe going to kill Adele and I will get this money, then he's going to kill the other people who are involved because they aren't going to be able to pay him. And it's just going to erase everything. Yeah. It's actually an ingenious move. Rex is, for a guy that's barely on screen, a pretty compelling character. Rex never talks. You don't really see him. Adele, you only ever see as a dead woman. Like, yet they're talked about a lot. In- but this is another situation, sort of like Dottie, where the other characters have talked about Rex as if he's the biggest idiot That's on right. the planet. Yeah. In fact, the first time that we even hear about Rex is the night that Ansel and Chris go to the strip club and they're talking about this whole plan ansel's like well won't people care that she's dead or whatever and chris is like who who would care and he's like what about rex and they're like oh that poor bastard she treats him like this and they kind of act like he's so dumb and like whatever and then anytime we see him he seems like he's got stuff going on he's he's got got it together looking dude clearly he had this whole plan and he knew how easily like yeah. they would fall for it. They're the dumbest people, and they just are oblivious to how dumb they are. Right. <laughs> Which is the most dangerous kind of dumb when you're not aware of how dumb you are. Because then things like this happen. Yeah. Because you think you're doing something, but you've already been outsmarted. <laughs> In order to his escape his debts to Digger and now Joe, Chris says he's running away That's it. to Peru. Now he's running away. And asks Dottie to go with him, which again is weird yeah. in retrospect. I think the first time I watched this, I'm like, okay, well, he's just like a protective brother. He wants to get her away from Joe. But now I'm thinking, if there was ever a scenario where like I needed to like go out on the lamb and just head out of, would I be like, I need to bring my sister? Yeah. Would that be the person I would ask? Right. All these CD motels that you're going to be shacking up. Yeah. In? It's weird. Yeah. Dottie says she will go with him, but she wants to see Joe again first, which Chris doesn't like, but he eventually doesn't have a choice because she's going to freak out. She's like, all right, all right. We then see Joe pulling Rex over, and we realize it's Rex because <laughs> Joe calls him Rex. Right. It's like, hey, Rex. I like how Rex doesn't even react. Like, how do you know my name? Yeah, yeah. For particularly observant viewers, they'll potentially recognize Rex's car because it is memorable. It's a yellow Corvette. Now, where would we have recognized that from? The hotel. The hotel where? Charlotte met Rex? Yes. Yes. So this is a pretty big revelation for people that are paying attention. I don't know that I necessarily realized it the first time I watched the movie. Yeah. In fact, when I was watching it for the podcast, I was like, wait a minute. Has this scene been in every version I've watched? Because I I didn't even remember that he pulled him over. I thought that... It's very quick. The climax moment was like the first time you even knew that joe had interacted with rex at all but it's, i think it is in every version quick cut together thing bookended by two other scenes so that like i don't know i can see why you can forget it i'm not a hundred percent sure it was a good idea to include it yeah 
I think it actually makes it more of a shock at the end. Like it, it makes yeah, right. like the reveals more fun. I think it, it sort of like takes the sting out of the reveals if you're paying attention. That's true, but by the time you get to everything, you're yeah. so locked in on that scene. Chris buys a gun, so we're all building towards something crazy happening, probably. Oh yeah, Is Chris making another mistake. It seems like <laughs> likely. To be fair, I think his only mistake was just not pulling the trigger faster. Oh yeah. If you're going to buy a gun and pull out a gun, you might as well just use it. Ansel and Sharla return home from Adele's funeral with a bucket from what they call K-Fry C. That's right, yes. (laughs) Which is definitely one of the big takeaways from this movie, (laughs) because I find that hilarious. I don't know why they call it that, but Joe calls it that too. That's right. I didn't know if that was just a Texas thing or that was just from the play. They discovered Joe already there. Yeah, which I I love this part because... The way that they play this now is just like Joe's just part of the family. They're in the middle of this conversation about like the funeral and stuff, and Joe walks in and they're like, oh, hey, Joe, you know. Yeah, there is a casualness, which is sort of weird because you know that Joe's going to be expecting his money. And at right. this point, we don't know how he's reacted to the insurance news yet. We're assuming maybe Dottie's told him, but this is the first time we've seen him yeah, yeah. since we've learned right. that. So it's weird because they're sort of not afraid that he's there, but I would be like kind of freaked out. Yeah, like what is this guy going to do? Yeah. At this stage of the game, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Charlotte's not really involved, but Ansel was there every time. It feels like he's just as much a part of it as Chris in terms of hiring him. Definitely. So yeah, it's strange how casual they are. They're like, oh, hey, Joe. Although they do start to distance themselves from him and be like, well, you know, Chris, Yeah, yeah. this was a Chris operation. Joe requests a chicken leg, and Charlotte gives him one. And then as the discussion turns to the insurance and Chris and Rex, Joe begins to ask increasingly pointed questions of Charlotte. The fact that he's a police officer, I feel like, kind of comes out in some of this, because his interrogation method is kind of like the stuff you hear about on, like, true crime podcasts or whatever, where it's just like they, they basically, like, walk you into something where you are admitting something. Your story doesn't add up. He keeps saying, tell me about Rex. And anytime Ansel interjects, he's like, I'm not talking to you. I want her to say it. She starts getting uncomfortable. I would imagine that pretty early on that she starts to like realize that he knows. Right. Because what else could this be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is this questioning? But she doesn't know what he has, like how much proof. You know, so she's right. going to obviously still try to get out of it, but... She has to kind of start knowing that he knows something. Something's up here. It keeps escalating and escalating, and then she slips up about the payout, and this is actually not the first time. She refers to it as 100K instead of 50K. She actually does it shortly after they learn that Rex is the beneficiary during that confrontation with Chris, but no one else notices in that scene. But Joe notices now. And he doesn't let it go. That's right. And the reason is, and this is something straight out of Double Indemnity and other noir movies, is that in the case of an accidental death, it's double. So instead of 50000 it's 100000 which is something that she slips up and reveals that she already knows about. Yeah. But the others did not. Then Joe produces the photographs. That's the right. The same ones that she was looking at earlier at the pizza place when... Dottie came up behind her. 
And you only see one in this scene, but it is highly graphic. <laughs> <laughs> it is a crazy picture yeah, to be you in a are movie. Like, what was going on in this relationship with Rex and Charlotte? It seemed like they had quite a time. You see uh, a picture that it seems to be. I mean, it might be fake. It might not be like real people. Or I don't know what it is, but it definitely seems to be a penis going into a vagina in this yeah. picture. Wow. Okay. It's a wild picture. Was this like in scope for the NC-17 rating? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to see, though. I really was having a hard time. I think there are other movies throughout the decades where there'll be like brief porn stuff in it that you can kind of slide under the radar as long as it's not on the screen very long and it sort of flashes by. More subliminal. Yeah. It's wild, though. It is a crazy picture. Yeah. But this is the so information that's confirmed. Rex is the boyfriend, that's which right. the car yeah. reveal, I, I, I think, sort of ruins. I mean, she's already been escalated at this point and starting to get more panicky. Uh, certainly, you can hear the guilt in her voice a little bit, the 100K, or however much, or <laughs> well, however much. Yeah. Her voice is shaking yeah, at yeah. times and then trying to like recover. I definitely think that you have to have sort of a dark sense of humor to enjoy this scene as comedy because it is sort of distressing. It is so intense, too. And like I said, I mean, the first time I ever saw this, this sequence was definitely much more shocking to me than anything else. I wasn't like laughing at it, certainly, but (laughs) I, I think it is one of the things that you can enjoy more when you're in tune with that dark comedy vibe. I think the idea here that Let's is going for and subsequently Friedkin as well, is sort of the same principle that you would look at as like going to a haunted house or a roller coaster or something that on the surface, if you were like new to being a human, might seem (laughs) unpleasant. You're like, I don't understand the appeal of this. And I think the idea is like, yes, you are supposed to be revolted by certain things in this movie, but you come out of it with your friends or whoever after the movie's over and you're laughing at how fucked up it is yeah, and for dark. Sure. Right. I don't know that they're necessarily thinking like a lot of the audience is going to like rewatch this movie. It's like an experience and then you're supposed to yeah. like that's a select few that were targeted within that crew. So sort I'm of like right here right allow now. yourself to breathe and laugh when it's over more yeah. than like laughing necessarily in the moment. I think when you rewatch it you start to appreciate oh, that the lines yeah. that are kind of funny. I think if I was sitting in the theater watching this and people started laughing, I would have been like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> Me, howling, laughing. Like De Niro in Cape Fear. Yeah, just like over right. the top laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this revelation is news to Ansel, who does not really take this well. But but also doesn't seem that surprised. No, He always has like a muted response to pretty much anything. It's almost like... There's a part of him that's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Resigned yeah. to this. Is the implication that he lost both wives to this guy? Or was him and Adele, like, their divorce unrelated to Rex? I don't know. But yeah. it is sort of like a emasculating thing to basically have both of your wives fucking this guy. Well, especially when they think he's so dumb. <laughs> well. Yeah. Joe shows Ansel and Sharla a check in the amount of 100000 made out to Rex, and so all signs pointing to Sharla being in on the scam and cheating on her husband, Ansel declines to intervene when Joe punches her in the face, which Nuts. is a 
brutal punch to the face. Absolutely. It's like hard to watch because it's not to use the expression in your face, but it really is. Yeah. The violence during this ending sequence is so over the top. Gina Gershon has like blood all over her face and obviously like the mascara is running. It's like this crazy look. Completely insane. And I also think the implication here is that Joe has already killed Rex, right? Yeah, absolutely. He only alludes to it, but yeah. Yeah, because he's like, well, this check is worthless because it's made out to Rex and he didn't sign it. He's indisposed or something. Yeah, there's like no way he's going to be able to sign it now. (laughs) Was that a mistake by Joe? I don't know. I don't really understand what happened there. Like, did he kill him not realizing that he had the check? Because you're like... Maybe um, he doesn't care about the money. That's true. Charlotte star- is acting like, oh, I can convince... That's what when he punches her. Yeah. Because she's like... Basically, she's like, oh, I could get him to sign this and like cut us in on it or something. Yeah. But you are just like, yeah, why didn't Joe try to make him like cash it and then do something, you know? It just gets wilder from here. I mean, you think that the punch in the face... Yeah, that's really only your first clue that this is like going down a very dark path. And yeah, obviously, a lot of people are not going to be able to go on this journey. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is... I know, it's It's wild. crazy. <laughs> so then Joe takes that chicken leg that he got from Sharla, and he puts it near his crotch, and he says, suck this, and she says, go fuck yourself, and yeah. spits. And then... And this it is goes the part- to an all-new level of darkness. Yeah, this is the stuff that, I guess, I hate to say it, but it is funny to me. I don't, I can't help but think this this, this shit is funny, that she says, go fuck yourself, and then immediately is, like, screaming and cowering. Right. Like, well, why yeah. would you just do that? Yeah, I mean, Ansel's even trying to be like, just stay down, like, don't argue with Well, he has no idea. Yeah. He's, yeah, his advice is as if Joe is, like, a normal guy. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's right. like, he has he no idea where about this is happen. going. And then Joe says, if you insult me again, I will cut your face off and wear it as my own as he's like strangling her right so basically your typical family film yeah you're like fun for all ages (laughs) i can't even imagine how i would have reacted if i would have saw this when i was like a kid oh my gosh it would be traumatizing there's no other way to say it and so charlotte blows the piece of fried chicken and it does not pull away in a semi-extended sequence it feels like it goes on for a while maybe that's just because what's happening and the shock of it but Oh, no, it's unflinching, and it goes yeah. on for a while. And and he's kind of, like, talking in this, like... I mean, he does throughout the whole movie, but this is, like, really paced at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's acting as if he's in a porn, and she's blowing him for right. real. Like, he wor- he's working up to, like, an orgasm. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, like, moan. And she's, and like, he's moaning like, with the chicken in her mouth. Like, almost, like, stuttering his breath at different points. Yeah. And he's like, grab my ass. Yeah, yeah. And she puts her hands on it, and he's like, no, grab it. <laughs> This commitment to this scene is so... Oh, I know. Insane. Everyone. And I mean, look. The camera pans over to Ansel. He pukes. <laughs> first. That's the first thing he does. But then he just like looks like just stunned. I mean, his reaction is the audience reaction. You're like, Folks, this is one trashy summer, all right? Yeah. <laughs> just deal with this scene. <laughs> this is, is a trashy well, movie. This is why this movie is so memorable. I think there's like so many good things to it. And a lot of the dark comedy really hits for me but this scene is just like that that is this movie imitating fellatio even on a chicken wing or whatever is i guess it's a chicken leg is it's grounds for an nc-17 this was obviously Uh, understandably so one of the scenes that's drastically cut down in the r-rated dvd but 
I do think Friedkin has a point. This scene, <laughs> look, obviously this scene's going to turn a lot of people off, but I do think that this scene it does sort of make the movie. This is what it's building towards, some huge holy shit moment. Otherwise, you just sort of have like a a sort of fun trailer trash noir Crime, movie, yeah. but this is like the thing where you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this is in a movie. Yeah. It's so odd. That's the thing. Yeah, and you would well, never have guessed this. Well, you were saying that you thought that this scene was just for like the movie. That's version, what I was and thinking. In the play, it's supposed to be like a blowjob. That's what, yeah. I don't know but why no. I thought that. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it just seemed to me like, how do I get to the chicken wing? I, to- you wonder is like, does he think that that's cheating on Dottie? Is that why there's, I don't like, know. This substitute, or does he want to just humiliate her in a way that, that is unprecedented? Plausible. It's so demented. Giving you his sadistic nature. So after he mimics having like an orgasm and it's over and he finally allows Charlotte to stop doing this, he basically tells them, like, look, that retainer is now mine. Yeah. I didn't get my money and I'm taking it with me when I leave. He's kind of made mention, and I think this is not the first time, I think he alluded to this to one, like a little bit earlier in the scene about Chris is on his way here. Yeah. And... He's going to try to take Dottie away. It's almost like that scene in Groundhog Day when Chris Elliott's going to come to the diner and Bill Murray's like, <laughs> That's true. It he's coming exactly to take like you that. away from yeah. me and he's like writing Stay Ahead of the Weather on the yeah. back. <laughs> Just before- you can't let him leave with you. You can't go with him. Just before that, Bill Murray and Annie McDowell were <laughs> <laughs> acting out this chicken wing. She was scene. blowing a yeah. cinnamon bun right. at that diner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were talking earlier about how Joe talks to Dottie in like this certain way and there's like this tenderness or whatever. But this is where what I was saying was like the truth is that it's actually like icky because it oh, all, yeah. is all like a show because he keeps saying that retainer. Right, he doesn't even right. say Dottie is mine, which would be problematic enough. Yeah. He he well, refers to her as like an object. As like a business transaction. Yes. Joe knows that Chris is coming to take Dottie away, and so he threatens to kill Ansel and Sharla if they don't stop him. Doesn't make any sense. This is the weirdest part of the movie. He doesn't need them. Absolutely. <laughs> Why wouldn't he just kill Chris immediately? Yeah. He killed Rex without thinking twice. Like, what is the point right. of involving other people? I don't know. I guess he doesn't want to upset Dottie because it's easier if she just is going along with stuff. Yeah. But... He, all right, we'll figure out a way that where Dottie won't know. It doesn't seem like that wouldn't be that hard. Really? It is strange to me that he didn't kill Chris like separate from this incident. But it makes it more fun, I Absolutely. guess, for the, for the climax. It fits the movie better. So Chris does show up, and then they go through this whole charade of a family dinner. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. It's mildly hilarious that Chris doesn't even seem to notice charlotte's fucked up face and then eventually he does say charlotte your mascara is running but no mention of the blood really right right (laughs) i guess she tried to wash some of it off but i mean she still looks fucked up yeah it looks bad Dottie comes out they actually say grace which is pretty funny and kind of disturbing everyone is pretending that things are normal yeah she's like i hope like jesus (laughs) has a place in heaven for my mama and they're like well (laughs) what (laughs) yeah it's the guy that killed her. Is right. And you knew even. I mean, I know. I know Dottie comes off as an innocent, but Jesus, Dottie, get well, it yeah. together. <laughs> like, are you, get on the same page. 
Yeah, that's the thing. Again, you don't really know what the deal with Donnie it, it is. Is, is she whole, aware of what happened? <laughs> this Does whole she thing really with understand this dinner it? is like so weird. Joe's like kind of like directing all the pieces of it and everything. Yeah, and it's like you know he's out- insisting everybody's eating, even though Ansel just puked and <laughs> it's like Charlotte helping, just blew a piece of chicken. Helping Charlotte, like like you know, like putting her seat behind her as she sits down <laughs> and stuff. Like it's like so weird. Barely get into it, and he's like holding up the glass and starts tapping it with a spoon that he's got an announcement. <laughs> yeah, I do think that that's something that I've seen in other movies where you have like this false veneer of manners and something you know yeah, like yeah. that's somehow that's, very it seems important. like serial killer-esque yeah hannibal lecter has that you yeah. know like other characters have that like weird mannered thing i don't know but everyone's essentially pretending that things are normal although chris is sort of just like i don't know what he's thinking i know he's like what did i just walk into well he's of course upset that he's even there because he knows that he's with, that he was with Dottie. He he's come to take Dottie because his plan was to drive to Peru. Yeah. Which, which seems sounds insane. ridiculous. <laughs> I would imagine that if his plan was to drive to Peru that they would end up in Canada or something. Right. right. <laughs> Joe announces that he and Dottie are going to be married, and Chris objects to this, saying, I can't let it happen. You can't have my sister, Joe. What do you mean, Chris? I mean, I can't let it happen. You're not going to marry my sister. I don't think it's up to you. Shut up. Don't tell me to shut up. You say another word, old man, and I will rip your head off your shoulders. Now, Chris, I can certainly understand your love for your sister. But you got to cut the old apron string sometimes. Okay, I'm not going to discuss it. She's my sister. I'm taking her with me. We're leaving here. We should let Dottie decide. Dottie doesn't have a say in the matter. Oh, I believe she does. You believe wrong. Chris orders Dottie to leave with him while Joe commands her to stay where she is. For a moment, Dottie stays at the table, but then she gets up and turns towards her bedroom. Both Chris and Joe yell at her, and then Chris pulls his gun, the one that he just bought. And as he's pointing the gun at Joe... This is so insane. I know. This is fucking nuts. Charlotte starts grabbing the knife from the table. Charlotte takes a knife from the table and stabs Chris in the shoulder. Which he does try to squeeze off a shot like right at the same time. Goes offline. This allows for Joe to pounce. And as Joe continues to beat on Chris, Ansel and Charlotte jump in and assist. I know. It's so insane. Not wanting to be killed themselves. But this also, is... like, audibly, like, cheering on Joe. Like, yeah, kill him. All... Kill right. him, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> this is his dad. Ansel is his I dad. I will say, I mean, th- what this turns into <laughs> is very similar to fucking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, the one death of the girl whose, like, face keeps getting smashed. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Because there is, like, a big can of... Yeah. It looks like pumpkin pie mix or something. Okay. It's being used to, like, bludgeon them. It's insane brutality. This is the other part that is trimmed in the R-rated version. Because it's just so over the top. Yes, it's relentless. <laughs> this is, like, a typical Thanksgiving dinner at the Crosby household. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> Everyone yelling, kill him. <laughs> About me? <laughs> <laughs> As you're sister's boyfriend is trying to kill you (laughs) you're like i can't let it happen (laughs) that would just be ansel like just throwing up in the background (laughs) dotty's screaming stop but no one's listening to her and then she picks up the gun that chris dropped 
she fires a couple of shots that hit the wall and then she shoots Chris who dies and it was interesting hearing Juno Temple talk about this scene on the blu-ray where she was seeing this as like giving Chris like a way out of this life like doing what she thinks is best for him and if you pay attention to the dialogue in the movie it does fit with that where he constantly is saying shit like I don't belong on this earth or whatever and the idea is I think that she is like wow he's so fucked up now from this beating with that can and he's never gonna pay this back like I'll just end this yeah really it hasn't been going well for him I mean she was probably the most sympathetic to him when he got the shit kicked out of him by diggers dudes yeah i think she sees this as like a mercy killing Uh, yeah it's just gonna be easier than what's ahead for him we gotta put him down and then she puts a bullet straight through ansel it actually (laughs) like goes through his stomach and out the window yeah because it shatters that window i don't know if the idea is he's going to die or not but it's a pretty significant wound yeah Dottie then turns the gun on joe telling him that she's pregnant which you're just <laughs> at like at this point you're what? like what joe appears overjoyed at this news as he tries inching closer to Dottie, and then the film ends just as Dottie moves her finger it's back like onto the trigger yeah and so you don't really know does she pull the trigger to kill but it joe does feel like not? she's squeezing the trigger a little bit yeah, yeah. i think the idea is that in my opinion she kills him because she overheard how he was talking about her and the yeah. way that he was yelling at her. And even more so than like what he did to Chris, it was like, it was sort of like that fake way he was treating her earlier, like slid away. And the idea that she's smarter than we all thought. Right. Like she realized like, Oh shit. Like I don't like, of course it's bad to be somebody's property. Absolutely. So yeah. And I, I don't think that she likes what he did to Chris. Well, no, no, she doesn't, which is why she starts shooting everybody, including yeah. her dad. I like that Charla seems to get off. Well, she had a rough enough time. <laughs> so that's your movie, <laughs> Killer Joe. Yeah, you like, what? And then it launches into one of the greatest songs of all time. That's true. <laughs> it's just such a the crazy most ending. random song to kick onto the end credits. That's the song that Digger's listening to in the, oh, yeah. in the that's right. SUV when he pulls up. But vibe-wise, I mean. Yeah. (laughs) What an unbelievable movie. It really is. I'm glad that we got it in a time before a movie like this just wouldn't be allowed to be made. Yeah, I don't think we got a lot of Killer Joes out there in the can right now waiting to be released. No, I think one day we'll get back to that, but not now, for sure. At one point... About four years ago, I think it was 2017, Friedkin announced that he was developing a TV series based on Killer Joe without McConaughey. Oh, sure, yeah. But uh, there have been no updates since those original news articles from four years ago, so I kind of think that that has not happened. That's not going to ever happen. Yeah. Because I think there was some interest in developing movies into shows when Fargo became like a hit. I think to live and die in LA. That's right. was also going to be a show at okay. one point. Another William Friedkin. Yeah. And I think they probably did some pitch meetings and maybe sold some ideas, but like, you know, they never made it anywhere, you know, as a lot yeah. of most things don't. So I kind of don't think they're going to do it. 
I don't really know how that would work. I, I don't think it would be based off of this story. I think it would just be based off of the character. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. Where he would be involved in like probably like, just like a cop that's a contract killer too, and that being yeah. one of like the premise. Which could be cool if it was done in a certain way, but I, I find it hard to believe they would be able to capture the the feeling of this movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know that many things could capture the feeling <laughs> of this movie. I think there's a lot underneath the surface in this movie. Totally. Which we talked about a lot of it, but yeah, like, is Joe as like, badass as he seems? Yeah. What is the deal with Dottie? What happened in the past? What is this? Who was taking stuff? those photos of Charlotte and Rex? <laughs> yeah, that photo that you see—it's like who was holding the camera? It doesn't <laughs> even make sense. It's just like from an angle from the back and the side. Okay. Yeah. I don't think Charlotte's arms would be long enough to reach the, down there. And Rex—I don't know. Are you holding the camera at like an angle like that as you're like <laughs> entering a woman? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It does raise some questions because this is film that they had to get developed at a photo hut they even talk about that that's the scene at the pizza place when she's on the phone with rex that's right you don't hear rex's side of the conversation but she's like oh it was just some pimply faced girl at the photo hut she probably never seen one of those (laughs) at least not one as big as that or whatever (laughs) real classy stuff (laughs) yeah yeah we should have actually got a gina gershon cameo to be a part of this episode that's a dream (laughs) someday all right, so this is week one of One Trashy Summer. <laughs> this will probably be one of the more known movies that we <laughs> tackle. Although, to be fair, even though the other movies are more obscure for the most part, this is, I think, the most extreme. I don't think the for other sure. ones are even really close to uh, this. Yeah, this is probably one of the most extreme movies I've seen. So, yeah, it's in the conversation, yeah. probably. I've definitely seen worse. For sure. This is for it's not, a, it's not a movie with a this dream. kind of stars in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So let's get to recommendations. Would you like to go first? I'll or? go first. Yeah, I had, I have two. Oh, One is probably more obvious, but I had never watched it before, and it's streaming on Prime right now. So William Friedkin's The French Connection. Pretty awesome movie. Well, I'll just <laughs> leave it there. It's a fairly beloved movie. Yeah, one best picture. Yeah. It was actually... It, it was Gene not Hackman, his... like a dirty cop, basically. It but... was not his first film, but it was... Like his first real film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. If you know what I mean. Like the stuff pre-French Connection, I, mean, I don't think anyone really counts. That's the, th- the, the thing with Friedkin, and it's in this movie too, it, a lot of his movies are about characters that aren't really good or bad. I mean, or like shades of both. Yeah. You know, complicated figures. I actually watched French Connection recently as well. I think you liked it a little bit more than me. Oh, I, I, Yeah, I did really like it. I gave it like four stars though okay, on Letterboxd, yeah. but I was like kept at a distance. It wasn't like as salacious as some of his other movies. Well, that's that I, true. I get into yeah. like more. Weird. Well, it definitely has a a mainstream appeal that I would say a lot of his other movies don't really. Yeah, I would say I have a a weird relationship with his movies in general, where I like a lot of them, maybe even more than like a lot of other directors, but I don't know that I love 
that many of them. Yeah. I like a lot of them, though. I mean, The Exorcist, that certainly falls in the category of love for me. Yeah, I would say The Exorcist and Killer Joe are probably yeah, my two favorites, for sure. which is weird. <laughs> but I like Sorcerer. I like To Live and Die in L.A. Yes. I even kind of like Jade. I've yeah. never seen Cruising. I do own it, though. No, I haven't either, but... Of course, that's on my watch list. Yeah, I need to watch Cruising. There's a few. Other. I've never seen Blue Chips either. I have seen Blue Chips. I don't think I don't think Blue Chips will be in the love category. For <laughs> no, you. probably not. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw The Hunted. I did see Rules of Engagement though. But yeah, just yeah. A French Connection, movie. One Best Picture, Roy Scheider, Roy Scheider Gene Hackman. Yep. Yeah. My other one was, and I didn't give it a good rating, but I still wanted to bring it up as a recommendation <laughs> to talk about it. Oh God. Uh, Gia Coppola's Mainstream. I think part of the reason for my lower rating is just like this already feels overdone the commentary on like why influencers and social media is bad <laughs> this kind of so it's it, like a lesser ingrid go it, it does have that feel a little bit it's definitely different than that more on the like the andrew garfield is pretty great in it i, I will say that but it's just i don't know it, it wasn't firing on all cylinders she couldn't quite deliver but i do think that there's a talent there. I mean, certainly, you know, having the Coppola name is uh, kind of enough. But there's definitely, stylistically, I think Gia Coppola can do some things that I, I can get into. And I did like Palo Alto. It's not perfect by any means, but uh, I liked that more than this. Yeah, James Franco fucking a high schooler. I don't know how that's going to play anymore. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a movie people remember that's and treasure. True. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I would be interested to see what else she does, if anything, uh, in the future. Yeah, I figured it must not be that great because it didn't really have like any buzz going on now. Yeah, I fi- and I figured with Garfield in it and the girl from Stranger Things, what's her face, Maya, Maya Hawk, and that Nat Wolf, and or it whatever. being about influence. I feel yeah. I felt like if it was like good, you'd be hearing about it nonstop. That's right. Yes, I think you would not give it a very high rating either. Yeah, I thought about renting it, but I just I never got around to it. My recommendation. I figured this is a weekend that a lot of people go to prom. I went to the prom several times, but I believe Memorial Day weekend was at least one or two of them. It's usually like pretty close to graduation. I don't really know what people are doing now because of COVID, but this is that time period. So I'm not going to recommend Prom Night, and I'm not going to recommend the remake of Prom Night, which I've never seen, but I've heard is terrible. Yeah, I feel like I know where this is going. But I am going to recommend Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, (laughs) which was originally called The Haunting of Hamilton High and doesn't really have anything to do with the first Prom Night movie. Where's this one streaming? This is on Amazon Prime and Shudder. And if you have Shudder, you can watch it with the Joe Bob Briggs commentary, which is what I did on Friday. I watched it as a double feature with Prom Night, which has Jamie Lee Curtis in it and Leslie Nielsen. But it's not good, really, at all. Yeah. It's sort of a shitty Halloween knockoff. But that was all Jamie Lee was getting offered in those days, so she took it, and, you know, it is what it is. But Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 is a supernatural ghost story. It has nothing to do with the slasher premise of the first movie. And it's completely insane. It steals from The Exorcist, speaking of Friedkin. It steals from Carrie, of course. And it steals from 
A Nightmare on Elm Street, even. All right, good things to steal from. Yeah, but that was part of my review. I'm like, yeah. if you're going to steal from stuff, steal from the best. And plus, there's enough original stuff. The kills are crazy. <laughs> and it it's about this spirit of a former prom queen that was a bit of a slut who inhabits the body of like a modern girl in the 80s and turns her evil. All right. And there's like a wild father-daughter makeout scene at one point. <laughs> There's a a kill sequence that Plus involves a the the girl who's inhabited being completely full frontally naked in the showers chasing okay. another girl. I mean, it sounds, sounds more like, like drive through exploitation than it even really is because it is pretty normal. I mean, it's like a an '80s horror movie. This is what people mean when they say they like '80s horror. It's got all it checks all the boxes. All right, it's a lot of fun. And it's prom weekend, baby. Okay. Hello, Mary Lou. That's prom right. night too. Although by the time people are hearing this, it'll be June. But yeah, what are you gonna well, do? that's fine. I guess this, uh, you know, this recommendation. It's one trashy summer, greatest October crossover. A little bit. Yeah, you don't need to have seen prom night, so don't even worry about that. If you have Prime and you're like, I like '80s horror. I haven't seen this one yet. It's trashy, so it sort of fits in with this month because, God knows, you know. <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot of wild scenes in it. So check it out. And I'd like to thank people for listening and checking us out. Oh, yeah. I'd like to thank people for following us on Twitter, at Greatest Pod, for telling their friends about this podcast, spreading the word. For requesting stickers. And God knows we've been doing this thing now for over five years. It's been a slow build. <laughs> a real slow build. Yeah, with a lot of lost pieces along the way, I'd say. What do you mean? In terms of listeners? Uh, Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of the process. That's true. <laughs> I think this month, this one trashy summer month, is going to lose us some more. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when they're like, all right, you did a movie where this woman is forced to blow a piece of chicken, and you laughed about it. It's art, people. Yeah, get used to it. It's yeah. called art. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... As Matt said, you can request a sticker, you can let us know what you think about the show, and you can follow us on Letterboxd, Zach, Z-A-C-H, 1983, and Matt Crosby. And I think that's it for part one of One Trashy Summer. All right, more to look forward to. Hopefully the next time we record it will actually feel like summer. I think it will. I think it's supposed to warm yeah, back Yeah, up. we're getting there. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. When I start making love, I don't just make love, I be stroking. That's what I be doing, <laughs> I be stroking. I stroke it to the east, and I stroke it to the west, and I stroke it to the woman that I love the best. I be stroking. Let me ask you something. What time of the day do you like to make love? Have you ever made love just before breakfast? Have you ever made love while you watch the Late Late Show? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever made love on a couch? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever made love on the back seat of a car? I don't know.
remember one time I made love on the back seat of a car and the police came and shined his light on me and I said, I'm stroking. That's what I'm doing. I be stroking. get right to the point uh it's come to my attention that you and the cleaning woman have engaged in sexual intercourse on the desk in your office is that correct <laughs> who said that she did was that wrong should i not have done that I tell you, I gotta plead ignorance on this thing because if anyone had said anything to me at all when I first started here that that sort of thing was frowned upon. <laughs> you know, because I've worked in a lot of offices and <laughs> I tell you, people do that all the time. So. You're fired. 
Well, you didn't have to say it like that. 